If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 tonight, Revelation chapter 7, and we'll read the text this evening, which says this, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, before I read further, let me make a couple of comments there. You'll notice that Manasseh is named as part of the 12,000 tribes, but Ephraim is not named. Instead, Joseph is named in verse 8. Of course, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons, so he's named in place of Ephraim. And then you'll also notice that Levi is named And Dan, the tribe of Dan, is not named. And some have built a conclusion based on that, that Dan is going to be eliminated from being a tribe that inherits land when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom. But I remind us all of the context of this. That's not what this context is talking about. This context is talking about those from the tribes of Israel that will survive the tribulation because they have the seal. And we suspect that probably why God doesn't let Ephraim survive and Dan survive, they kind of get caught up in the massacre of the Jews that will take place, is due to the fact that both of those introduced a idolatry, a gross idolatry, into the nation Israel. So what's talked about here is protection through the tribulation. It's not talking about the totality of land dimensions that will be given to the tribes when Jesus Christ is back. Now let's pick up the reading again in verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said, that's John, I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. 
For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, and we thank you for your people who've come out here tonight to partake of this great book of Revelation. I pray that you would minister to us through it, and we will praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, when I was preparing to teach the book of Matthew, I was talking with Mr. Miles about wanting to do a serious exposition of that gospel, and I mentioned to him, I've researched all commentaries. I'm not happy with any of them, because it seems to me the vast majority of commentaries on the book of Matthew miss the whole point. It seems like most of them dispensationally, they're all over the map and they're not clear. He said to me, you need to get your hands on A.C. Gabeline. Get your hands on Gabeline's commentary on the book of Matthew. And then, lo and behold, he gave me his copy, which I still have to this day. I treasure it. Mr. Gabeline wrote his commentary on Matthew back in 1910. It, frankly, is the best commentary I've ever read on that book. Now, A.C. Gabeline was a tremendous biblical pastor and scholar and teacher. He died in 1945. And he said, when you come to Revelation chapter 7... All of the confusion about the chapter could easily be cleared up if ministers and teachers did not lose sight of two simple facts. Fact number one, the church is already in heaven. They've already been raptured. They were raptured before the tribulation, so there's no application to the church in this text other than we get the privilege of seeing it like John did. Number two, what John sees here in Revelation 7 clearly has to do with Israel. That is just blatantly obvious. Now, in the Bible, Daniel predicts that when the Great Tribulation begins, a world leader is going to surface who will enter into a peace treaty with Israel. Halfway through the Great Tribulation, that same Antichrist is going to turn against Israel and have as his goal the destruction and elimination of the Jews. This is going to be a worldwide campaign to get rid of the Jews. According to Zechariah's prophecies, two-thirds of the Jews will die, one-third will survive. In order for any Jew to survive, it's going to require that God sovereignly protects the nation Israel, and that's exactly what this chapter is all about. At this point in the Great Tribulation, we see there's a major swing of events and a major refocus. Things begin to move toward Israel. This is a very key part of the Great Tribulation because up to this point, things have been hammering all over the world. The Tribulation began with God pouring out his wrath worldwide. Over two billion people are already dead. But now, as we're beginning to get near that three and a half year point, we're not quite there yet, but we're nearing that three and a half year point, things are going to swing toward Israel. In the book of Revelation, there are what we would call major parenthetical interludes there are certain parts that don't seem to be connected, but they are truly connected. Gary Cohen, in his book, Understanding Revelation, said you have three main reasons for these interludes, and to that we had a fourth. First of all, to show that God's grace and mercy are still operative, even in the worst days of tribulation judgment. As we saw last time, people could cry out to God. They don't. They would rather die than cry out to God because of their proud, hard heart. Secondly, to show the wickedness of satanic empire and its defiance against God. You clearly see that when you go through this book of Revelation. There are these moments where there's a pause in the action where you get to see the defiance that the world has against God. Thirdly, to show that there will be a final righteous judgment before the coming of Jesus Christ. 
And finally, to focus on the next chronological event that will occur in the Great Tribulation. Now, when you go through the book of Revelation, there are three main tribulation interludes. What I mean is, you have these sealed judgments, then you get a break in the action, then you get another sealed judgment, then you get a break in the action, and you get trumpet judgments, you get a break in the action, and then you get more that's revealed to us. Those are called interludes, and there are three of them. The first interlude appears in chapter 7. It features two visions that separate the sixth sealed judgment from the seventh sealed judgment. The second interlude appears in chapter 10, and it is the interlude between the sixth trumpet judgment and the seventh trumpet judgment. The third interlude appears in chapter 17. It occurs after the seventh bold judgment, just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, every one of these interludes in the book of Revelation are designed to get us to focus on the ultimate return and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where this is all heading. The Great Tribulation is a time when God is going to pour out his wrath as a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he's going to take over the world. So every one of these interludes presents a pause in the action that points to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come back and take over the world. At the time this happens, John's already in heaven. He's been watching those first six sealed judgments broken and God pour out his wrath on a God-mocking world. And now there's a pause in the action and John sees two things, two sights. The first one is he sees the ceiling of the 144,000 Jews. Now to dissect this in a right way and to dissect the first sight John sees, I want to ask and answer six questions. What is the theme of Revelation 7, 1 to 8? Well, the main theme is obviously the sealing of the 144,000 Jews. That's the theme. I mean, you can't help but see that. I heard the number of those, 144,000, you have 12,000 from 12 tribes there mentioned. That's the obvious theme. Number two, when does it take place? Revelation 7, 1 begins with a prepositional phrase, after this, after this. After what? After the sixth seal judgment. After God poured out that sixth seal judgment where people are looking in the sky and seeing all those cosmological things happen. I mean, with the moon and the sun and the mountains being relocated and they're asking to die rather than turn to the Lord. After that, that's when this occurs. The sealing of the 144,000 Jews occurs after the sixth seal judgment before the seventh seal judgment of the tribulation. Now, as we mentioned, Daniel classifies the Great Tribulation as being the 70th week or the 70th seven. We know from Daniel's prophecy that in the middle of the tribulation, things are going to dramatically change in regard to the nation Israel due to the fact that the Antichrist is going to turn against Israel. This is specifically described in Revelation chapter 12, in which the final three and a half years or 1260 days are left in the tribulation, and that number is named. It's identified as being 1260 days, which is three and a half years. So we can assume that the ceiling of the 144,000 occurs before you get to that three and a half year point. It was the time when Jesus referred to as being the beginning of birth pangs, and that's when this happens. This happens when you're starting to get near year three of the great tribulation. Now, the third question is, who are the agents involved in the special sealing? You'll notice from verse 1, John said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. 
Now, it's very clear that what you have as a prelude to all of this going down are these heavenly angels that are very much involved in this sealing process. According to verse 1, John saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west. We don't see this. This is God's business. I mean, there's sovereign stuff going on that we know nothing about. We don't see angels in this sanctuary tonight. I guarantee you they're here. I know there's an angel of the church here. There's every believer, I believe, has angels that monitor them. I mean, they're here. We don't see them. We don't see these four angels. John gets the privilege here of seeing them. And he saw them at the four corners of the earth. And these four angels apparently are authorized to use the wind and destructive damaging ways pertaining to the sea and the earth as part of judgment. And you're going to see that when you get to chapter 16 where those angels just unleash a barrage of attacks on the grass and on the sea and on the fresh water and on trees. I mean, they're going to literally pour out wrath then. Well, according to verse 2, as John saw those four angels who are getting ready to roll here, I mean, they're waiting to be used by the Lord in their ministry capacity. He sees another angel, another angel ascending who has the seal of the living God. And the pronoun another is alas, which means another of the same kind, another of the same kind of the fourth, another heavenly angel, another high-ranked angel. He seems to outrank these other angels because in verse 3, he tells them what to do and they do it. Or in this case, he tells them what not to do and they do it. We learn from verse 2 that John sees this angel rising from the sun. Well, what does that tell us? He's coming from the east. And that obviously is a key indication that the program of God is about to swing to the east. The program of God is about to swing toward Israel. It's located in the east. Things are going to now focus on the Middle East, and it's beginning to set the stage for that at this point in the Great Tribulation. Now, the message that this angel gives to the other four angels is, I don't want you to damage the earth to see the trees yet until we've sealed the bond servants on their foreheads. So, this has to do with protection of things prior to destruction of things. I don't want you to use your powers yet to do what you're going to do later in the tribulation at this point. We need to seal these special agents that we're going to seal. Now, this seal here is one that's going to be put on the foreheads of Jewish bond servants so that as God is pouring out his final wrath on this world, they're not going to be harmed. They won't be touched. And in verse 3, the sealing angel tells the other angels, do not start your final destructive work until all has been sealed. Now, that brings us to the fourth question, what does the seal mean? Well, the seal has a name on it. Flip over to chapter 14 of Revelation, if you would, please. Chapter 14 of Revelation. And I want to draw your attention here to verse 1 of chapter 14. We learn, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So this seal obviously contains the name of the Lamb, the name of the Lord, and the name of God the Father on his forehead. Now the Antichrist is going to use this, as you'll see in the next few weeks when we get into this passage, because he's going to demand everybody take a mark. They're going to have to have a mark. Well, in fact, you might as well look at that. Let's go over to chapter 13 and verse 16. Chapter 13 and verse 16, because when this Antichrist surfaced, that's exactly what he's going to do. In chapter 13, verse 16, he causes all 
the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And his number is 666. We'll talk about that when we get over there to that passage. The point I want you to see here is the Antichrist and Satan have an awareness that this sealing is taking place. I don't think people see it. I mean, the seal here is not something that hurts the people getting the seal. It's not like a brand. It's not like you're taking a hot iron and branding their forehead. This is some angelic special seal that just marks off the property of God and basically makes it untouchable. I'm not even sure the guys who are sealed at this point even know they have the seal on them at this point. But that's what this angel is called to do. Now, the concept of sealing a bondservant is the concept of you mark off ownership. It's like a brand that you would give to cattle or slaves or deserting military men. The Roman military literally did brand a man on his forehead back in John's day. But in this case, this is an angelic seal. Not like the Antichrist seal. I think that's going to be a real physical mark that he's going to put on humanity who's on this earth. God's seal is a protective sign of ownership that's only seen by God, and it's only seen by these angels. Let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 9 for just a minute, because I want to show you another text of Scripture that kind of deals with this theme, and you can see it in Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, I want to draw your attention to verses 4 to 8, and you'll notice the Lord said, Ezekiel 9, 4, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said, in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were in the temple before them. Now, this seal meant in this context that because they were so groaning about the sin and abominations that were taking place in the world, God marked off those righteous people. And that mark would mean when God was pouring out his wrath and using those angels to kill people, those people would be the untouchable people. In other words, as God was pouring out his wrath in the temple in that case, he would protect those that those angels had given that seal to. The person wouldn't see the mark. The person wouldn't even know they have the mark. But the angels know they have it. So what this mark means here in Revelation is that these certain individuals who love God and love the Lord Jesus Christ in the great tribulation are going to be sealed by God as God is pouring out his wrath. And we're about to go into the worst time of the tribulation, the final three and a half years. And God is going to actually seal off these 144,000 Jews and nobody's going to be able to hurt them or harm them. It does tell us something about the election of God, though. And that is that God can elect people and God can save people and God can protect people and God can use people even in the worst of times. I mean, God can still sovereignly work in the minds and hearts of people when the world is just going completely out of control. When he's allowing horrible things to happen in the world, when he's allowing judgment kinds of things to happen in the world, he still can protect those that are faithful to him. And he still can save those out from whom he determines will be saved. 
Which brings us to the fifth question. What's the purpose of the sealing at this point in the tribulation? The primary purpose of this sealing in this part of the tribulation is protection of property because of God's ownership and specifically protection of Israel. There are two prophetic reasons why this sealing is very important. The first one we would call the Old Testament reason. In the Old Testament, it is predicted that one-third of the nation Israel is going to survive the tribulation. One-third of the nation Israel is going to be brought safely into the promised land. In order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, there must be a literal number of Jews that survive the tribulation. And, of course, this seal would in part guarantee that. Secondly, the New Testament tribulation reason. Now, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 24, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 24, and I'll show you what I mean by the New Testament tribulation reason. In Matthew chapter 24, and in the tribulation passage that we're in, in the 24th chapter of Matthew, Jesus makes a statement that in verse 14 says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So right there in that passage, Jesus predicts that the kingdom gospel is going to be preached to the entire world. And at this point, the believers who are communicating the word of God have been martyred. I mean, we saw that in the fifth seal judgment. The believers had been martyred because they'd been communicating the truth of God. Well, who's left then to take this kingdom message of the gospel, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, to the world if the martyrs are all dead? Well, these 144,000. In order for that kingdom gospel to go forth, Jesus Christ is going to seal off these 144,000, and they're going to proclaim the truth until he gets back here. There has to be these evangelists to proclaim that. And the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of grace. Don't get confused on this point. We don't present the gospel of the kingdom today to people. We present the gospel of grace. Believe in the Lord and be saved. That's our message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We don't say repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, that isn't our message to people. We don't preach the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that says the Lord Jesus Christ is about to come back and set up his kingdom on this earth. And you need to be in a right relationship with God in view of that reality. We're looking for the rapture of the church. We're not looking for Christ to come back and establish his kingdom. That kingdom message is entirely different than the gospel of grace that we preach. And that message, by the way, of the kingdom is going to be established and Jesus Christ is going to come back. And the sealing of this 144,000 is going to anger this Antichrist. I mean, that will anger this Antichrist. He will go on a vendetta and an attempt to rid the world of the Jew. And the Lord Jesus made it clear that in order to live through the tribulation, there's going to have to be a special grace protection. And this 144,000 is going to get this protection because they're going to proclaim the kingdom gospel to the world and they will receive and inherit the kingdom. And by the way, I may say this, this will be the greatest evangelistic impact that will ever reach the world, and they will do it in three and a half years. Now, you put that in some perspective of the church. We've not been able to do that in 2,000 years. You can take all of the collective number of movements from the Reformation to the revivals, 
You can take all of the evangelists who have proclaimed the gospel, and you can take all of the missionaries who've gone to and fro all over the world, and you can calculate all of the things they've done. They've never been able to reach this whole world. This group will be able to reach the entire world in three and a half years. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole earth, and these 144,000 will be the ones to do it. Now, the sixth question is, who are they? Who are the ones sealed? Frankly, it just boggles my mind why this question seems so difficult for people, because the answer is so crystal clear. You got the Seventh-day Adventist. And the Seventh-day Adventist, they'll tell you, well, now, the 144,000 are really those that are part of the Seventh-day Adventist church who celebrate the Sabbath day. They're the real faithful that celebrate the Sabbath day, and they're the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witness will knock on your door, and they'll tell you they're part of the 144,000. You have the Mormons, some Mormons, who claiming they're it. They're part of the 144,000. You have amillennialists that say the church is part of the 144,000. And then we have ministers that they'll just say, well, you really can't know. You really can't know. We had one of those goofs. When I left our first ministry, myself and Mr. Miles offered to help the board find a guy that would continue to teach him. They said, no, no, we'll handle this on our own. Okay. We'll pray for you. Lord bless you. They brought in a guy, and the guy stood there, and he read this text, 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he said, we really don't know what the number is, and we really don't know who they are. And I'm looking at that going... I don't think it gets any clearer. There are four, in fact, I'm going to make five simple facts. I've got four in your notes. You'll have to add a fifth if you want that. That really clear up the point. First of all, the 144,000 are coming from the direction of the east. You'll learn that in verse 2. Secondly, the 144,000 are identified as sons of Israel. You'll learn that in verse 4. Thirdly, the 144,000 are from the 12 tribes of Israel. You see that in verse 4. Fourthly, the 144,000 are identified as being 12,000 from each tribe that's named. And the tribe is specifically named, 12,000 from each tribe. And fifthly, and this one you have to get over in chapter 14 and verse 1, they actually meet with Jesus Christ on Mount Zion. Now God doesn't take the Gentiles to meet with him on Mount Zion. But he takes Jews to meet with him on Mount Zion because ultimately he's going to set up a kingdom and he's going to return to that spot to set up that kingdom. So what you see here, you don't have to be a great theologian or a brilliant exegete of scripture, is boy, these 144,000 are spelled out as being 144,000 Jewish bondservants of God who come from all 12 tribes of the nation Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, and their responsibility, as we will see, will be to take the word of God to the world. We also learn in Revelation 14, they're single Jewish men. They uh, kept themselves from any type of immoral activity during the tribulation. They will be very rare at this time because it will be a godless, ruthless, immoral place. We'll see it later developed as we get to the time when Satan's confined to the earth and he's just unleashing all of the forces of hell that he can. During the Great Tribulation, most of mankind is going to be pursuing demonic evil that will include witchcraft and immorality that will dominate the world. 
And during this particular time, God is going to put his special sealing protective mark on these 144,000 Jews because his program is going back to Israel. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said, if you claim your part of the 144,000, you're claiming three things. First, you're claiming you're Jewish. Secondly, you're claiming you know your tribe. And thirdly, probably the most scary, you're claiming you're in the tribulation because the church isn't in the tribulation. So obviously, if you're claiming that you're part of the 144,000, you're claiming you're going into the tribulation. There's site number one. Now, site number two, John sees this unusual worship service in verses 9 to 17. And you'll notice what verse 9 says, after these things, after this angel appears and after this sealing is taking place, it becomes obvious that all the people who are there at the throne of God realize the magnitude of this moment. The 144,000 Jews have been sealed. And all the people who are there realize this has Israeli ramifications here. I mean, what the Bible has predicted is going to happen to Israel is on the verge of happening. What this sealing means is that things are about to rapidly move toward the nation Israel and the righteous king who is none other than Jesus Christ, is going to come back and set up his kingdom and take over the world. And there are about ten observations we want to make about this worship service. Number one, the number of believers in heaven is so large it can't be counted. Verse 9 says, I saw a great multitude which no one could count. Now, I don't think that has to do with anything connected to the church. In fact, it doesn't, because he'll say later in this chapter, these are people that came out of the tribulation. As we said, we know at this point there have been over 2 billion people killed. 2 billion people. And obviously at this point there are a number of people that are in heaven who were killed in the first part of the tribulation and the number is so large it can't be counted. The second thing I want you to see is the incalculable number of believers is from different nationalities. Verse 9 says, No one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne. Now that tells you right there that people have been killed all over the world. This has been a worldwide wrath pouring out of God. He's been killing people all over the world, different nations, different tongues, different peoples. It also shows you that there are differences in heaven. All people are not the same. We're not some like bed sheet floating around. When we get to heaven, there are going to be men and women. We can prove that point easily. When Rachel was dying, Moses said, and her spirit, uses the pronoun her, her spirit's leaving and she's going to be in heaven. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, he used a feminine pronoun to describe Jairus' daughter, meaning I called her back, she was a she, in eternity, I called her back from the dead, brought her back to life. What you learn here is there's individuality in heaven. We're not all the same. When we get to heaven, we don't all say to ourselves, well, I came from Australia. I mean, there's going to be differences in nationalities, differences in people. We'll all be there. We'll all love the Lord. But there are going to be differences there, individualities there. The third observation is the incalculable number of believers is worshiping before God's throne. That's what he says we saw. They were all around the throne. The fourth observation is the incalculable number of believers is worshiping before the Lamb. And again, they are worshiping God, they're worshiping at the throne of God, and they're worshiping the Lamb, which tells us the Lamb is God. If you're at the throne of God worshiping God, and you're worshiping the Lamb, the Lamb is God. This again lends itself to Trinitarian theology. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The fifth observation is the incalculable number of believers is wearing white robes. Verse 9 says that they're clothed in white robes. Verse 14 will identify those who are wearing these robes are those that came out of the great tribulation. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they came out of the great tribulation after the rapture, which means they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ after the rapture. And they died. They died in the first part of the tribulation. Some of them were martyred for their faith. Some of them just died in those cataclysmic wrath judgments God was pouring out. The sixth observation is the incalculable number of believers have palm branches in their hands. Notice the text says, and palm branches were in their hands. Now the palm branches are a sign that victory belongs to Jesus Christ. And the fact that these believers are from all nationalities, I mean, the fact that they're there from all different countries, they speak all different languages, they recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah and King of Israel. Because you'll remember, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to establish that he is the king, they had palm branches there. Well, here at the throne, all people who are there realize this is the God, Savior, Messiah, King. He's the King of Kings, and he's about to take over the world. The seventh observation is the incalculable number of believers is very emotional and verbal. Verse 10 says, and they cry out with a loud voice. We're talking here about an emotional yelling, even screaming. You have this massive, massive, incalculable number of people crying out to God and crying out to the Lamb for salvation. Now, they're already saved. They're already in heaven. But they're crying out to God and to the Lamb to save the world, pour out vengeance. And I want you to notice salvation is to God. That's what salvation is. Salvation is about God, to our God. Salvation comes from God. Salvation is for the purpose of glorifying God. And the sooner we learn that and believe that and trust that, the better we'll be. Now, the eighth observation is all angels and elders and four living creatures worship God, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. All of the angels and the elders and the living beings fall down on their faces before the throne of God. They worship God. They realize this is what the whole Bible's been talking about. There's a kingdom about to be established on the earth. This kingdom's going to be established for Israel. She's going to have all of that land that God promised she's going to have. She's going to have her righteous king reigning. And everybody in heaven realizes this. They're overwhelmed with the fact we're nearing this. This ceiling of the 144,000 has triggered in heaven the realization, man, oh man, we're just a short time away from all of this happening. So they bring out themes, amen, dogmatic truth. That's what it means, amen. Blessing belongs to God. Glory belongs to God. Wisdom belongs to God. Thanksgiving belongs to God. Honor belongs to our God. Power belongs to our God. Might belongs to our God. God is to be worshiped forever and ever. Amen, dogmatic truth. And they're basically saying, man, it's almost time. It's almost time for God and his wisdom to do all that he's going to do. 
He's going to send back his precious son who's going to take over the world. He's going to reign in total righteousness. You'll have righteousness reigning over all the world. You'll have the Jews there. You'll have people who were part of the church there. It's going to be a spectacular moment, and all heaven realizes we're on the verge of that happening. Which brings us to the ninth observation. One of the elders questions John. I find this intriguing in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, now this is John. John's the me, the pronoun. These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? Now, it's pretty clear John knows this isn't part of the church. He gets that because the church has been raptured. The church, he's there. So he understands these believers here aren't part of the church and they're not from Israel. So he obviously is wondering, well, who are they? Dr. Charles Ryrie said this was proof that God's completely aware of the inner thoughts of men. And if we keep in mind that John is in heaven, we may conclude God's completely aware of the inner thoughts of man while in heaven. There's no hiding anything from the Lord. And John's probably looking at this massive throng of people, and he's in heaven, and he's going, well, who in the world are these people? They're not the church. We were here three and a half years ago before this stuff began. So it's not the church. So the elder beats him to the punch, and he asks John two questions. Who are these believers clothed in white robes, and where did they come from? Well, notice John's answer there in verse 14. I said to him, my Lord, you know. It's a nice way of, a polite way of basically saying, I don't know, you tell me. I mean, I don't know where they came from. I mean, I am, haven't been in the tribulation, so I have no clue where they came from. John is not presumptuous at all. He's not pretentious at all. He's not afraid to say, I don't know. Now, the elder specifically identifies who they are in verse 14. He says in verse 14, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He said, the ones that you're looking at, who are this incalculable number, standing before the throne of God, standing before the Lamb of God, standing there worshiping God and proclaiming these wonderful, glorious things about God, are the people who came out of the great tribulation during the first six sealed judgments. They came out of the great tribulation and they realized the importance of the sealing of these 144,000. These are people who understand the eschatological significance of the sealing of the 144,000 and their right to be here. Their right to be at the throne of God, their right to worship God is not due to the fact they died. It's due to the fact that they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And I make a remark before we move on. That's the only way in any dispensation anyone gets to heaven. You have to, by faith, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're in the church age, whether you're in the Old Testament age, you had to trust those blood sacrifices that pointed to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or whether you weren't raptured, you were an unbeliever, you went into the Great Tribulation. You had to believe in Jesus Christ and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And some who believed after the rapture, obviously a great number of people did believe after the rapture, they died in the wrath judgments of the first six sealed judgments. However, all that are there had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Which brings us to the tenth observation. The elder gives three results of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
in verses 15 to 17, during the great tribulation, there will be people saved. Most of them will die. The elder brings out three results. Every believer is in heaven before God's throne. Verse 15 says, for this reason, they're before the throne of God. Why? They've been washed in the blood of the lamb. They're not burning in hell. Man, they were on earth when God was pouring out his wrath and a vast majority of people were going to hell. Death and Hades. Remember that one? That was tracking people down. They were going to hell. Not this group. The reason this group is here is they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, every believer here serves God. That's what the text says there in verse 15. For this reason they are before the throne and they serve him day and night. These believers didn't serve God on earth. Well, they had the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ before the rapture, and they didn't serve the Lord in a church. They weren't serious about their commitment to God, so they get a chance to serve him at this point in heaven while the tribulation is taking place. They get their chance to serve the Lord for a while at the throne of God. And thirdly, every believer has eternal comfort. They'll hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now you see here what God's doing, how he judged the earth. He just allow the world to pour out different judgments for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. During the great tribulation, there's going to be no comfort here on earth. I'm telling you that right now. Those who reject Jesus Christ before the rapture are not going to find anything comforting about the moment that first seal is cracked open. That will pour out the wrath of God, begin a process, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. In fact, I would go so far as to say the worst is still yet to come. We've only come through about three years of the Great Tribulation. The worst is still future. But when these believers finally get to heaven, who trusted him during the tribulation period, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more burning sun. Jesus Christ is allowing them to drink springs of water from the water of life, and he wipes away the tear. No more emotional letdowns for them. No more failures. I mean, on this earth, you do have your share of hurts and fears and failures, but not when you're there. And I suspect one of the reasons why the tears are flowing is because these people realize, man, we blew it. We blew it. Thank God we're here. They're probably grateful for being there, crying, shedding tears because they're at the throne of God because they know they don't deserve to be there. They rejected Jesus Christ prior to the rapture of the church, and they're probably mulling that over. I mean, they rejected Jesus Christ in the grace age, and as a result, they ended up in the tribulation. But when they got into the tribulation, they made a decision to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They end up in heaven. You know, when I left radio back in the 70s, after I came to faith in Jesus Christ, before we moved to Grand Rapids to go to school, I went to work at the Brown Company, which was a paper mill, a great paper mill, actually. This city at one time was known for making paper, and I worked all different jobs in that mill. I was there about a year before we moved to Grand Rapids, and I worked at both ends. I worked at the beater end, and I worked at the finished product end. Well, at the beater end, we would throw this dirty, oh man, I'm telling you, and, I, and actually, I kind of like this job. We take these bales of dirty stuff, cruddy stuff. I mean, it was like pieces of paper, ripped up cardboard, it was ripped up boxes and all kinds of stuff. Sometimes you'd almost see rags in there, it looked to me, to be dirty rags that were in there. And we would take that. My job when I was at that end was I'd take a forklift and I would take that big bale of dirty whatever it was and I would just throw it in this beater. 
And then what I would do is I would turn water on, and we'd put heat to it, and then we would add some chemicals. You had to set chemicals at a certain level, and then you would let that go for probably about 25 minutes, and then you would drop that, and that started a process that would take it into dryers and all these rollers. When you went down to the finished product end, which was the opposite of the beater end, you'd never believe it. That pulp that was dirty and cruddy and ugly went through the press and went through the dryers. It came out beautifully white. And I would look at that and I'd go, that is an amazing transformation. Just a couple hundred yards away, it's dirty crud, and now it comes out beautifully white. That's what God does for sinners. That's exactly what he does. He sees sinners and all of their filth and all of their dirt. He sees sinners when they've made a mess of things and they've ripped up their lives. And then, then he washes them with the blood of his son. And he puts them into the press of life. And they come out whiter than snow. That's what happened to these who were in the tribulation. Let's pray. Perhaps you've never believed in Jesus Christ. Why not settle it tonight? Right where you sit. This is business between you and God, no one else. But you need to believe in the Lord. You don't want to go into this tribulation. You want to believe in the Lord right now while you have the opportunity. So... Just admit the truth about yourself, that you're a sinner just like all of us, and invite the Lord to take over your life. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word, and we thank you for this book of Revelation. We thank you that it just is, when we compare this to the Old Testament with the New Testament, it just makes crystal clear sense. We see in this passage of Scripture, Lord, that you have a special program for Israel, and even when you're pouring out your wrath, there's this program that's forming, and you're going to bring it to fruition. We thank you for that, because that certainly teaches all of us you're a God of your word, you're a God of truth, and we're grateful that we can count on you to take us to heaven. Thank you for the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ that washes us whiter than snow. In Jesus' name, amen.